Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. Have you ever heard of something called neuraesthetics? Well, if you have, kudos for you because you're way smarter than I am. I had never heard of this until uh, I met our next guest, Dorothy Shabas, who is uh, a painter, uh, pretty, a pretty accomplished painter, uh, but also a medical doctor and a neurologist. And her specialty within neurology is something called neuraesthetics. And in a nutshell, it's basically the neurology of how we perceive things. But obviously, I'm going to let her explain a little bit better. So I'm super excited to have Dorothy on the program today. Welcome back to another episode of the State of the Art. And I am here today with someone super interesting who I met at an event at the California uh, Academy of the Sciences. Um, doing a panel on AI and art, and her name is Dorothy Shabas, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, correct. Um, and Dorothy, we're sitting here in her beautiful studio in San Francisco, so this is a great setting. Thanks so much for having me over here. You're welcome. And uh, so, so I'd like first and foremost for you to give um, our listeners, if you don't mind, a real brief snippet of what your neuraesthetics is because it's a difficult thing to say and and, uh, not the most familiar thing to people. So can you give us just a quick synopsis on what that is? Yeah, sure. And thank you, Andrew, for coming all the way to my studio in the heart of San Francisco in Hayden-Ashbury. Absolutely. Um, And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my passion about neuraesthetics. Um, So neuraesthetics is a very hard word to pronounce, especially <laughs> for somebody like me. Uh, but it's basically in a, in a, you know, if I can summarize what it is, it's looking at looking or um, trying to understand how we perceive visual things. In my case, I'm interested in um, visual arts. And, uh, and I would say there are two parts in your aesthetics. It's um, uh, the, how we uh, perceive images and how we process then images in our brain after they are uh, seen um, to start with. So it's a um, multidisciplinary um, specialty. I myself, I'm a neurologist and I am an artist and I look at neuroesthetics from the point of view of the artist. Mm. Uh, but other people are working on neuroesthetics that are not, uh, who are not artists or neurologists. You have philosophers, you have sociologists, um, you have historians, graphic uh, designers, um, and, 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 and other especially that are um, um, working on neuroesthetics. Uh, there, there's been this conference called uh, the uh, Annual Conference of Neuroesthetics, um, taking place in Berkeley for many years, uh, but now it stopped. And at the last conference when I went, I counted over 15 different special uh, spe- kinds of specialists mm. uh, attending or participated in uh, participating in the in the discussions. Yeah. 
So now that we have a little bite of what exactly neuroaesthetics is, because I yeah. just wanted people to kind of understand that out of the gate, um, you're not only an expert in this sort of science of looking at how to look, mm -hmm. but you have domain expertise both as a medical professional. I mean, you're an MD, you're a neurologist, um, as well as an artist. You've, you've been to art school, so you've really seen both sides of this. Um, what was... What was the transition like when you decided, because you worked at UCSF for years and um, decided to kind of turn into this pursuit of neuroaesthetics? Can you kind of give me an idea of what that transition was and what this journey has been from art to medicine to back to neuroaesthetics? Uh, yes. So I've been uh, specialized in multiple sclerosis for over 20 years. Mm. Um, that's my primary training and specialty. And then I decided to quit um, my medical practice and my research on MS while I liked it a lot, but I wanted to dedicate 100% of my time to art. I've always painted since, you know, um, I was very young and I've always thought about doing a career in art, uh, but um, also I love neurology. So I decided to do neurology because it's a safer place to go in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, income and, uh, and, um, social integration. But, uh, when I got the opportunity, I, I took it and I went to art school, um, a hundred percent of my time. I learned art with other artists and then, uh, I moved on to neuroesthetics. Uh, so that's the story. And the reason why I wanted to do an art school and really take it very seriously is because I do take art very seriously. I think we should all take artists very seriously. What they are doing is serious, is important, is, uh, is, is essential in, in, in our society. Um, and, um, and I want to approach neuroesthetics from the perspective of the artist. I am not a neurologist interested in art. I'm an artist interested in neurology, if you will. Mm. So my research in neuroesthetics and my, you know, my work is grounded in my artistic practice, not the other way around. Yeah. So, and can you expound on that a little bit? What exactly, what did you study in art school and what, where did that part of your personality come from? Uh, in art school, you mean in San Francisco? Yeah. I went to the uh, San Francisco, um, at the San Francisco Studio School, um, where I learned how to be completely immersed uh, in, um, in painting. Hmm. Uh, all we talked about was painting itself, the process of painting, and um, lines, colors, values. All these things, all this vocabulary that I knew intu intuitively for some of it, but I, I also learned how to talk about. Um, you are not born knowing how to talk the visual language. Hmm. At least I was not born. I, I may have been born or, or raised knowing how to look at things in a certain way, but to talk about it and to be aware of it hmm. is another story. So in that school, what was wonderful is all these other artists were. Uh, serious about what they were doing. We all had very different styles, but at the end of the day, we all spoke the same language. And uh, when we critiqued uh, each other's work, uh, we would only speak the visual language and not, oh, I like it, it's cool, or <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice above my sofa, or I could sell it for 200 bucks, you know? Right. We really talked about um, what we were doing and uh, and the visual language. 
So I, I, I often say that I learn a third language. Uh, I speak French primarily. I learn English. Um, and, uh, and then I learn the visual language. Hmm. So that's what I learned um, in art school. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. So how can this practice of or this understanding of near aesthetics so you have this this background in um, visual language and and presumably the, all the theory and the you know the hours and hours of painting that goes into a, a qualifying uh, art institute. How is this um, this pursuit into near aesthetics informed your own painting? That's a very interesting question, very important question. Um, it does and it does not. I would say that. Um, it does because now that I'm more aware of what I'm doing, uh, for example, uh, when I draw a line uh, that's not horizontal or vertical and I draw a line that's more oblique and I know I am having a hard time, maybe I'm just going to you know, move the canvas around so I can draw a, a, a horizontal or vertical line instead and then move the yeah. canvas back up. Uh, because I know my hand is not able to draw an oblique line as easily as a vertical or horizontal line. And that's for neurological reasons. Hmm. That's for uh, because we are perceiving horizontal and vertical lines uh, primarily more efficiently. Uh, and oblique lines are very difficult to perceive and to process and to understand, um, hmm. you know, in terms of um, how our brain processes the information. So that's, for example, an application, a very concrete application. But when I paint, I am very uh, careful not to think about all these things. Mm. Uh, my painting activity is more like a laboratory. Uh, I am completely immersed in what I'm doing. I am painting for the sake of painting. Yeah. Um, and and then I I step back. And I try to understand what works and what doesn't work. I think a lot of artists work that way. Or you think about it, you sleep over it or something, and then you come back. And then when I come back, maybe then it may inform, I know why it's not working, you yeah, know, because yeah. these two colors share a similar value. And, and my brain is, you know, having conflicting information, you know, with uh, two and two values that don't say the same story. Yeah. And maybe I should switch the value a little bit and not the hue. So sometimes it helps, uh, but most of the time it's more an input for my uh, research, if you will, on your aesthetics than yeah. uh, an output. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So fundamentally, um, it it you really are staying an artist in your art, and that you you're really trying to feel it and see it first, and then use near aesthetics to kind of explain it. Is that uh, is that it's correct? Exactly, you rephrase it much better than I said it. <laughs> Um, I think I told you already in the past, I, I, I did like, I've done a medical research for many years. My PhD is in immunology, so nothing to do with neuroesthetics. Uh, and on MS, I was working on questions that arise from my clinical exper um, experience. Um, so being immersed in the medical field, you know, makes you think about questions or are relevant questions that you may then, you know, put um, into your research plan. I see painting the same way, you know, when I paint, I paint. I'm not saying I'm going to work on vertical lines today. 
Right. The same way when I see Mr. X or Mrs. Y, I don't say, I'm going to see if this guy can enter my medical study, you know, and and, <laughs> and feed my database. Right, right, right. I don't work like that, uh, but I'm going to listen to what they have to say, uh, symptoms and how they tolerate the medication. And then maybe later on, an accumulation of data like that um, helps me um, formulate hypotheses that I'm going to work on. Yeah. So it's the same process. How do artists use this information? Because I know that you've, one of your passions is teaching people this stuff and um, going out. And I think you're teaching both enthusiasts, but also serious artists about oh, yes. what your research is. So what, what do you hope that artists are using this information for? I'm going to tell you what they told me because yes. I can't guess. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what some of them have told me that it really helped them. So I'm going to take them, I'm, I'm going to take again the example of the vertical lines and the horizontal lines because it's sure. easy to understand and, and short to explain. Uh, we perceive uh, vertical lines uh, before we perceive horizontal lines and before we perceive oblique lines. That's how our brain works. Uh, I didn't know that really before I started to paint. And I wondered mm. why on hell can't I draw an oblique line, you know, straight and exactly going the direction I wanted to go. And um, so, so I remember with this artist, her name is Kathy Kuhn. She um, works at the IBC, ICB studio in uh, Sosalito. She's a very confirmed um, artist. And she, I remember her, um, um, doing a little aha, you know, when I told her about the vertical lines and the horizontal line and showing them a Monet drawing of uh, a boat with tons of cables going in all the directions and all the, hmm. you know, nothing, um, nothing vertical or horizontal, but the anchor of the boat. And I, I, I covered the anchor and I said, do you see this painting the same way when I cover the anchor or when I show you the anchor? Hmm. And the fact that there was an anchor, uh, you know, in the literal... <laughs> in the real sense of anchoring and, and the visual <laughs> sense of anchoring made a huge difference. You cannot define chaos if you don't have a vertic uh, uh, um, vertical line. You, yeah. you cannot. It's, then it's, it's not chaos. It's nothing. Hmm. If you have chaos versus a vertical line, it becomes really chaos. Yeah. So she, she understood how it could apply to her. That's why I understand from what she told me. Uh, it could apply to her painting when she had a hard time finding what was wrong in her painting, basically. And she's yeah. more an abstract painter with a lot of straight lines between shapes. Hmm. So that's an example. Yeah. Uh, that's an example. And uh, other people also, when they come to my seminars, they realize that um, it's not either one way or the other. It's not like we paint in an analytical way or we paint in a true <laughs> intuitive way. Right. Uh, actually, we paint with both ways. It's yeah. it's integrated. And I also told them that intuition itself, yeah. it's not magic. It's also grounded in the brain. The brain is an, the organic substrate of our intelligence and of everything what we're doing. Hmm. So it's not, I am against analytical people or uh, scientific people. There is really an overlap. And uh, so if that helped them just for that reason, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about mm -hmm. a lot on the podcast is the, uh, the myth of the artist yeah. and, and people assuming that art comes from yeah. this magical unicorny place where, mm -hmm. you know, only artists who wear funny hats and weird clothes can access it. Um, and I think it's, it's really interesting. You know, I've, I've said it for a long time, but it's very different coming from the mouth of a, uh -huh. a serious scientist that, 
this stuff isn't smoke and mirrors. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. And not only that, but I think that uh, neuroesthetics explains uh, how different each artist uh, is from the other artists, the next door hmm. artists. It's, we, are, we are individuals. We are individual artists. And, and we are defined by um, experience. You know, Kandinsky said that a good artist, a relevant artist, is defined by himself or herself. Mm. Uh, the place they live in and their history of painting. You need all these factors in place to make somebody unique. Mm. Uh, so when you look at neuroesthetics, uh, you see, for example, that the Watt system, which is uh, the way our brain and the visual cortex perceives um, face recognition, for example, mm. and colors, okay, as opposed to the wear system that um, uh, processes the space um, perception. So the what system is uh, has a temporal um, uh, a temporal um, uh, spread, and uh, and and in the temporal lobe is memory. So you can see that face recognition and color recognition already is more related to memory than space recognition. Mm. Everybody has a unique memory. You know, we we were born in different environments. Uh, even visual memories. We ha I have memories of the Mediterranean seas, sea every summer that you may not have. So this particular yeah. blue that Nicolas Destel is talking about, for example, or all the fauves are, are, are painting or impressionists are painting are in my memory, in my visual memory. I was mm. raised in France. I was, I was to go to the south, to the Riviera every summer. You, I don't know where you, you were raised, but uh, probably... In, in a different visual environment. Right. Um, Certainly not France. <laughs> <laughs> so it just shows you that the way you recognize colors yeah. or you identify colors mm. or you use colors and when it's you know, the, the other way around is related to your memory. So each artist has, is unique and uh, has a different perception. The perception, this perception is not something universal. There are some common grounds but uh, but it's 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 processed in a very unique way at the end of the day because it's it's not just one neuron to the other it's one neuron to connected to a, a network of other neurons. Yeah. So what uh, I'm curious um, what some of the common ground is, especially with colors. When it, it was, I think, a previous conversation that we had, you mentioned that different colors can have different effects on the brain. Is there, uh, so for instance, the like the thing that I've always heard growing up is that the reason that restaurants put red everywhere is because that has sort of a primal effect in making you hungry. Is there, is that a real thing? Is there real common ground where, you know, colors have an actual effect on a, the general population? Yes, uh, I think so. But I don't know that it's been studied extensively. Uh, for example, the relationship, I mean, this is a scientist speaking here, right, right, right. the relationship between the red color and how we <laughs> want to eat has not been studied. <laughs> there is no significant evidence, you know, uh, supporting the, but, but there is, um, yeah, there is a relationship between, um, colors and, and, and emotions. Hmm. Um, and there is a relationship between colors and symbols. And symbols are also relate, related to emotions. Uh, so there is a, a great um, um, uh, painter who studied um, colors extensively. He's French. 
Mm. And he studied, I mean, his books have been translated in different languages, including English. You can find them at SF MoMA. His name is Pastoro. And uh, I can give you the reference at the end of yes. the podcast. <laughs> and he, he, ex he takes each color and talks about the history of each color. Mm. Uh, for example, what black versus blue um, evokes in our brains mm. uh, is very different. He goes back all the way to the history of Protestantism, for example, mm. uh, and the association between Protestantism and black which I find relevant in this country, right? Which was sure. founded by Protestants. Um, and in France, Protestants are the minority. So it's, it has a, a very a specific story itself, the color. And so when we see a color, it's not like, oh, I like it or not. It's much more than that. It's associated with our memory mm. and uh, associated with our emotional memory and also our semantic memory at things. When you see red, you see blood. Mm. When you see blood, you see emotions. You know, it's like, oh, is this person bleeding? You know, it's, 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 it, there's a very direct connection. Yeah. When you see white in certain countries, you see um, peace. Uh, and in other countries uh, like India, you see death. Mm. Uh, so he talks extensively about that. And uh, so I think you're completely right. Colors are associated with emotions and can be used to uh, trigger these emotions and when you put them in a painting or in, you know, advertising. Yeah. Uh, I use red personally a lot uh, by touches because mm. uh, I can't miss red. You can't miss red. You you could miss like a, a greeny, like, <laughs> but right, red, right. you can't miss it. So yeah. I love red, but you, so if you use it, I, I use it like with touches and they are very helpful in my own painting to create something else which is a uh, movement and and dynamics in my painting yeah another sort of uh i guess fundamental of visual language that i'm curious about we were talking about earlier and that is structure and work mm -hmm. and you made the statement that a, a, a painting will always need some kind of structure but it will depend on the artist whether a sort of the painting follows the structure or the structure follows the painting yeah is there a natural bias there? Do you think there's more more artists or more people that relate to one of those two scenarios? Or in your experience, has it been pretty evenly spread that um, we're all just a little bit different? I think we're all a little bit different. I think it's more on the spectrum. Yeah. And I'll give you the example. I like this example of Agnes Martin. I think we talked about it already. Uh, Agnes Martin was the most intuitive and unstructured person you can think about. Mm. Um, uh, she was a very talented painter, and she spent over 30 years painting um, horizontal, vertical lines, or <laughs> the both of them in the same painting. And yeah. Usually their painting, her paintings were square <laughs> and, and very subtle colors. And Agnes Martin didn't want to explain why she would paint horizontal or vertical lines. She was pretty upset about uh, interviewers who kept asking her to justify why do you use vertical and horizontal lines? And vertical and horizontal lines are the basis of the definition of a structure. That's why I'm talking about mm, this. So her yes. paintings were very structured, but the way she painted them was very intuitive. And, and I, I, believe, I, I believe she suffered some kind of uh, mental 
fragility. I I I, I don't know the diagnosis, but I've mm. I've watched a documentary about her where you see her completely absorbed in some calculation on you know that she was making on a notebook and and so it it was a very um a non-rational mm. it was very um um embedded in her work process and still she didn't start she she didn't put structure at the core of her process she kept saying that um what she was doing lines like that horizontal and vertical were the essence of beauty mm. so she felt that vertical lines and horizontal lines were probably calming her brain and were kind of um very pleasing to her brain mm. and to my brain by the way yeah, and i'm yeah. very different from her and the reason was that again vertical and horizontal lines are perceived uh, in a very primary way by our brain and she perceived that before uh, she was taught that, and she didn't decide it to do vertical and horizontal lines. She just made them. Yeah. So I don't know if she would have appreciated me coming and telling her, oh, I know what you're doing, vertical and vertical. <laughs> uh, and I think it's not relevant, right? But right. It's, it just shows that structure can be at the essence of a, a very intuitive painter mm. without them aware, being aware of it. Yeah. So... Magnus Martin was work was about structure. Yeah. Mostly about structure. And and she was not even aware of that um when she was making them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I and I like being a little bit aware of that <laughs> when I look at her paintings and I know why I like so much sitting at SF MoMA in the room in the back, like the little chapel I call I call it. Yeah. Where they spread all her work. That makes sense to me now. Before I was like, what is she doing with these horizontal and vertical lines? And now <laughs> I, I appreciate the calming effect. And I, I sit there yeah. and I appreciate it. I take the time to appreciate that. Yeah, I have to say, I actually stumbled across her um, last year at the, at the SF MoMA. And by the way, for listeners, if you have the chance to check out, I mean, obviously all of SF MoMA is incredible, but um, but she really is a very interesting artist. And before I ever encountered you, I'd noticed her and there was something about it that it just did kind of sit in your brain. And it's one of those things that with great art, sometimes the simplest stuff is the hardest stuff to do well. Um, and you got that feeling from her and it is very calming. So I would urge all of our listeners, if you have the chance, um, do check that out because it was a very interesting after you then later explained to me why that happened. Um, I was fascinated by that. Yeah. I think you're, it's such an interesting position because there there are always these debates in the art world between critical quality of something versus the true spirit of the art or sort of the academic quality of art versus you know the purest it sounds to me is it fair to say that in your heart you tend to be more of a pure artist that you find the most beauty in um in sort of the soul of the artwork yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree with this statement. Yeah. Um, and not only that, I think there are limits to what neuroesthetics can understand. The same way there are limits uh, to what artificial intelligence can mimic. Mm. Uh, so taking again this example of vertical and, and horizontal lines, that's something you can easily modelize. I'm not a computer person, but I can... Right. 
you know, you are, <laughs> I can, I can, you know, foresee that it's something doable to have right. a computer being aware of vertical lines and horizontal lines when they produce something, for example, or when they look at something. Yeah. Uh, now there are things that are more challenging or impossible to mimic. I yeah. think so, dear to my soul. And, and um, I would say that uh, authenticity is something very uh, hard to mimic. Taste. Taste is very complex. It's at the very end of neuroesthetics, you know, whether you like it or not and why. Yeah. This is a huge question mark. How can you <laughs> mimic that? Yeah. Taste is related to the legitimization of art. And I can elaborate on that if you want. Sure. Who is going to elaborate, uh, who's going to legitimize what art is? Right. You know? Right. Certainly not me. Certainly not you. But who's... <laughs> what? I have a podcast. <laughs> okay, I okay. I'm just Billy Goods uh, okay. if that's not what I'm doing. Okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, let me say that very clearly. Not me. Uh, <laughs> even enough. though I'm aware of a certain number of things, I, I don't, I, I will never be able to do that. Uh, uh, so uh, authenticity, um, taste, meaning. Mm. Meaning is really... Uh, a fundamental, I think, to me, a fundamental uh, a force and and drive in the artistic process. Why do you do that? You know, or what yeah. do you want to do? Or the why question um, that may, def you know, and 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 it's very hard to grasp the meaning, uh, to define the meaning with actual words. Uh, if you compare a piece of art with um, uh, uh, graphic design, for example, or advertising, take like the other side of the spectrum, which is very strong visually, the meaning is more clear, right? You want to sell what you're trying to sell or you want to make it more visible. Yeah. Uh, but the meaning in, in an artist is, is, is different from that, right? And so that is very uh, hard to modelize. Sure. Uh, I don't know. And, and that makes art unique. Yeah. And that, that makes the artist unique. Um, to to go back to legitimization, um, um, I I recommend uh, to the audience um, <laughs> uh, some books by a French sociologist. Uh, his name was uh, Bourdieu, and he wrote two books uh, about art. And I have uh, the English translation of the title. <laughs> He's recognized worldwide, for, yes. not only for his books but for his uh, methods in sociology. So the first one was published in 1993. It's called The Field of Cultural Production. And the other one in 1996, The Rules of Art. What I liked in his books is that he, and he studies how we are, gonna, how we are legitimi legitimizing um, art. Mm. And there are different ways. Uh, so it can be a legitimate way to legitimize art, if you will. Like, you know, I am an art history professor and I'm going to tell you if this is a good piece of art or not. Right, okay, right, that's right. one extreme of the spectrum. And then there are non-legitimized way to legitimize art. <laughs> and it was way before social media, but at that time, including in, the, in its spot, you know, is, you know, fashion design critique, uh, a relevant mm. uh, person to determine whether this is real art or not. Yeah. Of course it is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an art in itself, but traditionally conventionally it's not as legitimate sure uh, and now i would put in that uh, bag social media you know is having yeah. a thousand of thumbs up uh, <laughs> uh criteria to say this is relevant art yeah i really question that yeah uh, it, 
is art about being a popular contest uh, or not? This is an open question. Yeah. Uh, but I like the idea that we open um, the door, um, you know, with social media and all the tools we are having to um, art uh, definition to a broader um, a, a broader spectrum of people. Yeah, I really, I really love that, and I, I, I that's also one of the reasons why I left academia. So I, academia, people are right, right? They, they, they know what is right and right. they know what is wrong because this is what they are supposed to do. When, when you go in the art world, uh, you know everybody has their own say and their own opinion, mm. and that doesn't come from the same place necessarily, the same training, the same um, drive. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I I like this book. I think it was a very uh, he was Bourdieu was a pioneer in um, in the field of uh, art legitimization, and I think we should read his books again today. Yeah, yeah, it's a very fascinating perspective when sort of put under the microscope of you know he never intended for social media to happen, but it's it it's exciting because in a certain way it's the ultimate sort of democratization and sort of making his ultimate point right yeah why do you think that more people are even with instagram and social media sure it's easier but it feels like there is generally a little bit more of a trend in visual culture i think specifically maybe not in the fine arts as much as that as you're seeing in design right now but from your perspective from someone who has been steeped in the arts for such a long time why should people tune into this stuff? Why should people care about this? Why is this something that we want to thrive? Uh, because we are surrounded by it. We are surrounded by visual information. And we, uh, you know, we spend so much time on our computers. Even artists spend a lot of time on their computers. Uh, mm. uh, we are bombarded with images. Uh, so our brain is stimulated all the time, uh, constantly. <laughs> by images and this has an impact a deep impact uh, on how our brain works thinks you know visual information influence the way we think mm. uh, oh yes behave and and uh, and um make opinions and 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 help us make choices so we better be educated. I think we should all be educated about how we perceive visual information. Um, it, it, it's true for, especially for, yeah, for, for the, the, the computer world, but also in our daily lives. Uh, you see now the Salesforce tower. Now they had to put images on the very top. I don't know if you saw them yeah, yeah, at yeah. night. It's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. But it's one more thing we have. You know, before I was on the Bay Bridge coming, you know, to my house after a long weekend in <laughs> nature. And now you have this, you have to look at it and you don't see what's underneath right. anymore. Why I love the skyline before. I'm not saying I don't like Salesforce tower, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's distracting. Sure. And it's, it, we are overloaded. We are overwhelmed by all this visual information. It's like, no, they can't waste this space on this building with nothing on it. They have to put something on it mm. to stimulate our brain. Uh, and we have, I think, a lot to learn from um, artists and people interested in your aesthetics uh, uh, in terms of how we want to create our visual environment. Mm. Uh, I think it's very important and... Um, um, 
again, it has a huge impact on um, uh, on our brain. And now I'm talking about, I'm thinking about, um, you know, children, and we're raising them in this environment. Mm. Uh, I think one dimension that we haven't talked about uh, is, um, but we talked about it earlier, is um, uh, time and visual information. How how long we take to mm. look at some image and how long we need to process that information. Yeah. Um, I was telling you that I dreamt at some point with another artist. His name is David Miller. If you hear me, David, to create <laughs> uh, to create uh, a movement called the slow uh, slow painting movement. I think uh, it's about time to do that. Uh, take the time to digest uh, the images uh, that are bombarded on us. Mm. Uh, maybe close your eyes once in a while, and uh, or go to nature where you know there is some stillness. Mm. Uh, you need that to, um, to reju uh, rejuvenate uh, your brain. Hey, everybody. I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. To take a little bit of a turn, I'm curious, you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast, one of the focal points is what is the art world doing in the world of technology and vice versa? Um, and there Obviously, one of the top debates right now is what is artificial intelligence going to do for creativity? Is creativity really the last bastion of difficult to recreate uh, uh, artificial intelligence? Um, and I'm curious because you're the first person I've talked to who's really um, on the medical side and on the, the neurology side uh -huh. of this. I've talked to plenty of people on the technical side. Uh -huh. But is the impending singularity, is it as serious as people are making it out to be? or um, are there very real limits to what you see that artificial intelligence could or should be able to achieve? Uh, I think there are real limits to what artificial intelligence uh, can or could achieve, but there are there is also huge potential for creating like a new tool or a new brush mm. if you want to the for the artists who are open to use artificial intelligence uh, to expand their um, skills. Or, or expand their um, the the things they can do. Um, uh, I I I think it's not a good idea to uh, really uh, compare side by side human intelligence versus artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, uh, I'm going to give you another quote. Oh, <laughs> you know, my, this is a quote that I love, but I don't know it by heart, and it's about comparing. Um, I don't have it, of course. No, I have it. Um, it's uh, it's uh, a pioneer in computing science, 
and I know I shared this quote with you already. Mm. His name was uh, Edgar Dishka, and uh, he um, he died in 2002, and he was a, a visionary um, a thinker. And what he said when uh, it came to compare uh, artificial intelligence and human intelligence, he said the question of whether a computer can think is no more interesting than the question of whether a submarine can swim. Mm. I like that because, um, you know, uh, fish do swim. Submarines don't swim. Right. Submarines, they, they go in the water. They go up and down, forwards, backwards. They look like a fish from a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, they may scare other fish, uh, but they don't swim. Uh, I would say that computers are not artists. Uh, computers cannot create art. Computers, however can extremely efficiently and more efficiently than humans um, take data, uh, information from data, mm. process this data, and potentially produce visual data uh, that may look like art, but they are something different, okay? They are like, um, they are like, uh, uh, they are creative in a way that it was not created before by somebody else. <laughs> it's, it's maybe not even possible for a human being to create that thing. But whether we can call it art or not, I don't know. Whether we can use it as an artist, of course. Mm. You can rebound on this. You can use it. You can... Um, and I'm going to give one example. Um, it's uh, a project by Google. It's called Google Dreams. Mm. I don't know if you heard about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Google Dreams, basically what they do is they teach, if I'm not getting this wrong, because I'm not a techie person, but <laughs> they teach the computer, the neural network in their computer, to recognize patterns in, in some kind of image. For example, they are going to be the, the computer is going to be able to recognize dogs, okay? And they're going to imprint that in their program or something. And then when the computer is going to look, I put that between brackets, at another picture, they are going to project the image of dogs on these pictures. And you get this hilarious picture. It's available <laughs> online. I right. looked them up. And you see a landscape, you know, I think it's in the mountain somewhere, and superimposed with dog pictures everywhere because it's, it's like a representation of what the computer sees. Mm. And it's really what you don't see, right? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. You see dogs here and there mixed in the in the shapes of the mountains. So this is creative. This is a new thing. Whether you, I like it or not, it's another question. <laughs> but I find it fascinating. But whether, whether this is art or if this is visual data production, I don't know. The human mm. touch has to expand on that to make it art. Uh, at the same time, if we could mimic what I see as an artist when I look at a landscape, I don't see dogs. <laughs> but if uh, the computer could enhance my ability to see oblique shapes, I'm fascinated by oblique shapes and oblique mm. lines. If the computer could enhance my ability to look at that, I could become Nicolas de Stel maybe and, uh, and produce these beautiful paintings with these lines that I don't see in real nature if I had something to enhance my brain, you know, ability to do that. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but so, sure. so that's one example. So that's one as aspect um, of, um, of my answer to your question. The other aspect is Satya Nadella, you know, the CEO of Microsoft, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book 
uh, it's called Hit Refresh in yeah. 2017, yeah. I think, where he shares his vision about the future of Microsoft, but also the future of intelli uh, artificial intelligence. And, and, and I have a quote from him too, because I think I, I can't rephrase what he say mm. because I, I, I'm not as good as he is. <laughs> and he, but he says something, he said, when history was made at Kitty Hawk, and he's talking about uh, the invention of the plane. Sure. It was man with machine, not man against machine. Mm. Okay. Today, we don't think of aviation as artificial flight. It's simply flight. In the, in the same way, we shouldn't think of technological intelligence as artificial, uh, but rather as intelligence that serves to augment human capabilities and, um, and capacities. Mm. And um, I think it's completely right. Um, I uh, would give you an example that's not Microsoft, it's Google, their competitor, but they're all working the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Google created Google Palette. And mm. Google Palette is available for everybody, and I have no. Uh, I'm, not I'm, being not, paid yeah, for this. I'm not being paid for <laughs> saying that. Uh, and um, I discovered it recently. So, Google Palette, basically, what it does is what Satya uh, Nadella is talking about. It, um, uh, it allows you to upload a color that you are very drawn to. And I uploaded colors from my own paintings, like four dots from my own paintings that are recurrent colors yeah. that I'm so attached to and I don't know why. And I don't know where they come from, okay? They are just my dear colors. I'm hmm. very protective of these colors. And then the Google Palette allows you to find the same colors in a huge um, collection of paintings of traditional, you know, recognized painting that they have from all the museums in the world that they could work with. And then, to my surprise, I recognized my colors in other people's paintings that I didn't, I was, I wasn't aware of. Mm. I give you a very precise example. I recognized my violet, my dear violet, my mauve violet that I, I, I love so much from Gauguin. Um, uh, and and I never, it never mm. occurred to me. I knew I know Gauguin, but I didn't know I took his violet. <laughs> <laughs> And then what it's wonderful, it's, it's fun, wonderful because I was able to look at all these paintings from Gauguin, all their painters who use this um, violet, including some from the Middle Ages, yeah. and look at other colors that we're using in relation with this color and experiment, experiment with my own painting. Mm. I take that as a tool uh, that is very useful for me as an artist to develop my own art in a very authentic way. Yeah. It's not. It's like speeding up uh, the process, my artistic process, my quest for colors that work together or don't work together. Yeah, and it 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 makes me gain a lot of time, and and it puts me in the perspective of the history of painting that I feel I'm lacking sometimes. Yeah, and I'm very thankful. So yes, uh, it can also be a tool to enhance creativity, real artistic creativity for artists, hmm. but it doesn't replace them. Yeah, that's, I mean, in a certain sense, that is in line with some of the other responses I've heard that, I mean, what is the fundamental definition of technology or the fundamental desire of technology? It's to make things more efficient and to improve quality of life, mm -hmm. right? And so in a certain sense, um, one of the things that I hear a lot is, hey, look, this doomsday scenario of the singularity Sure, that's one of a billion outcomes that that may be, you know, years down the road. But the point is that usually, you know, things <laughs> someone said it the other day, um, 
there are enormous expectations that we have for technology. Yes. And then there are the things that we assume are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And usually the reality of of where technology ends up is just past the things that we know are going to happen and far, far away from these enormous expectations. So in that sense, you know, it's just another tool in the toolbox. And it can be detrimental too. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to say so. Uh, if I go back to Google, yeah. uh, they have this amazing collection of um, paintings, you know, uh, from all the museums in the world. And they allow you that. I think they have a tool called a gallery or collector um, <laughs> for collectors. Uh, basically, when you put up your work on the walls, you can use this app to pick and choose from these paintings. Or okay. you upload your paintings and you pick and choose and you display them in a nice way. I uploaded all their uh, uh, collect uh, their, their entire collection on my computer, and I get all these pixel size <laughs> <laughs> reproduction of paintings. <laughs> what do you do with that? Then I did a search. I did yellow, and then, oops, some of them you know disappear. And right. then I, uh, I I put another search entry. I, I don't remember what I put. You know, maybe a year, right, nineteen forty-five right. to nineteen seventy-five, <laughs> and then boop. It decreases again, but you have some some that shouldn't be there. That's not what I meant, you know? Right, right. And so, and this is overwhelming. It's like visiting all the museums in the world in one day. It's that's why I I I don't use that tool, for example. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so there are progresses to be made. Um uh, but there are a lot of good things too that could be made at, as long as we <laughs> I really mean it, as long as we incorporate artists in the process uh if we only rely on technology mm. programmers you know uh developers i think <laughs> we are going the wrong way and I, I i i mean i suspect you agree with me on that we need to have creative people that are not necessarily uh developers and that have been trained with you know in a different way we also need more people interested in aesthetics, by the way, to <laughs> to keep that perspective in mind yeah. when you create these tools. Yeah. Else, you're gonna you're gonna think you're gonna do something that's efficient, mm -hmm. that does the job description, but you're gonna miss a lot of essential uh, characteristics mm. uh, in the artistic process or in the visual process. It's interesting. I um, interviewed someone recently who ran a lab with that um google oh. dreams dreamscape or whatever it is uh -huh. um and he is an artist but uh, -huh. uh also has a little bit of technical background and he was saying that one of the fundamental differences whenever you're talking to an artist using these platforms versus a technical person uh -huh. is whenever you look at an end product the um the engineers are always curious about what parameters you've tweaked how did you get it from a parametric standpoint what is what are the values that actually went into this? Whereas the artists are always interested in what was the idea here? What what was your source material? What was your input to this? So, what was the meaning? Right, exactly. And the authenticity. So uh, talk a little bit more about that because it it seems for um, you know, for someone who is formerly an academic and a rigorous scientist, you know, these ideas of authenticity and meaning are so difficult, difficult to quantify and um, and really lock in, but clearly they're very meaningful to you and yes. how you see the art world. So talk to me a little bit more about how you see the role of authenticity and meaning. Well, authenticity and meaning are 
uh, characteristics that I think, again, are uh, going to be hard to mimic with artificial intelligence. Mm. And, and they are also at the core of the artistic process. Without authenticity and meaning, I think it's hard to call uh, an image uh, a piece of art. And I'm not talking about masterpiece. I'm just talking a piece of art. Right. It has to have some meaning. And I think a lot of people would agree on that. It's not me who guessed that. You know, it's, right. it's a well-known fact. Um, what I know is that even the brain can trick you to feel something or or uh, to and your own emotions uh, can trick you to to um, uh, in terms of emotions. So I'm going to give you a story that's going to show you. I hope that you may reproduce what looks like an emotion, but without the meaning and the authenticity that goes with it. Mm. And I think it's the same when we look at art and we produce art in a careless way. Yeah. Okay. If we forget this artist part in in the process. Uh, so it's the story of deep, deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease. And I'm going to tell you a personal story. Uh, I'm not doing a scientific review of the literature here. <laughs> but I, when I was um, practicing medicine in Paris, I was working in this center where they did um, deep brain stimulation to patients with Parkinson's disease. The idea was that you, you, do an, you, you put an implant in the middle of the brain in a region called the hypothalamus. Uh, and then you stimulate this region, and if you stimulate the right place in the within this few millimeter size um, area, you're going to decrease the tremor of the patients and increase their quality of life. Now it's working very well, but when they started, there were some trials and errors. Sure. And so what we did at that time, and I think we still do it today, is you imp your implant has three plots at the end, and because it's so tiny, the area that you need to stimulate. You, you know, you try the first plot. If it doesn't work, you try the second. If it doesn't work, you try the third mm. until one of them works and that's it. So there is this banker, uh, a patient, very serious in his 60s, really not uh, funny looking uh, with his shirt. And he's sitting and he has this implant in his brain and, um, and he, is no, he knows he's being filmed. And um, and the and the film is displayed in front of a, a room full of neurologists, and so they stimulate the first plot and the tremor stops, and then they stimulate the second uh, spot just to see and to show us, and the guy out of nowhere starts laughing, laughing out loud, like laughing to the point that he cries, and that the whole the entire room of neurologists and neurologists are not fun people. <laughs> is laughing out loud because it's contagious. You know, laughing is contagious. Sure. Yep. So we are all laughing and we don't know why. And, and actually the guy in the, in the movie doesn't know why either. He's laughing, laughing. And then at the end, he, he, we, we stop laughing because we see that why is he laughing? You know, it, it lasts for too long right. and there's no reason. And then uh, he has cramps in his stomach because he's Oof. laughing too much. And he says, stop, Please stop the stimulation. And then they turn it off and he stops laughing. And then when the exam examiner asked him, you know, why did you laugh? What, what was so funny? He said, I don't know. There was nothing funny. Yeah. Uh, it was just irresistible. The urge to laugh was irresistible. Yeah. And, and while I was laughing, initially I found I was laughable. And then that's why I was laughing. And then he got lost and then he couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. Yeah. But his laughing, um, his laugh was not authentic. Right. He it really looked like an authentic laughing, like an authentic emotional 
mm. laughing, but it's not. It was not uh, an authentic laughing. It's called. It has a name. It's called pathological laughing. You have the same with pathological crying. Mm. It's 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 just artificial. Yeah. So even at the time where computers are going to be able to make us feel something or make us feel like we feel something, we have to be very humble and realize that actually um, it's going to be really hard to convey the meaning and the authenticity of this emotion. Yeah. And so when it comes to art, it applies completely to art. So we can generate more interesting pictures with Google Dreams than dogs. In a, <laughs> So we may generate something more subtle or that, you know, more art, artsy between brackets, but the meaning of it, right? Uh, if there is no artist, if there is no human brain behind it, I really highly question it. Mm. <laughs> so fascinating. A, a quick personal story to match uh-huh. your story was my, I have a family who are, you know, every, every family bonds over something different. And our family is humor. And my oldest brother was always the ringleader for that. And he always said, he's like, if someone doesn't laugh at your joke, if you just laugh at it long enough, eventually the other person will start laughing. And true <laughs> enough, try it. Some, it takes some guts to do it. <laughs> but if you're ever at a bar, just start laughing. And sooner or later, you'll get the whole bar laughing with you. Yeah. There works. is even laughing therapy. You know, there's this yogi. Yeah, who yeah, does yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yawning works the same way, by the way. <laughs> if you look at a, an image of a lion yawning, it's going it's yeah. to make you yawn. Yeah, I know. That's hilarious. So there's so much to cover in this world that we're really only scratching the surface in this conversation. But I'm curious where you see this going, where, where near aesthetics can start to inform, um, whether it's technology, whether it's new art movements, where would you like to see this? this pursuit go in the long term? Um, I would love this um, discipline to um, reach uh, out to uh, the entire artistic world. Mm. Um, uh, I think um, artists, but also uh, art collectors, art amateurs, you know, art lovers, uh, museums, um, um, but also uh, pe- graphic designers, uh, be very aware of uh, how we look at things and, and, and use it in a clever way and, and in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's one thing to be informed. It's, it's another thing to use it properly and ethically. Um, but I think I would love it. I, I would love these principles to spread out and and I would love to raise awareness among these um, a professional artists and or people from the art world. Uh, I think also we talked about it. I I, I wish um, it could also um, the awareness could be raised uh, in the technology world. So what you're doing at Mini Canvas um, is very relevant. You know, uh, teaching uh, uh, people how to draw. And so how to be more aware of how they see things, because when you learn how to draw, you're more aware of how you see the things you draw and the things in general is very relevant, uh, especially if the people are not trained in that world. Yeah. Uh, so making it accessible, you know, uh, fun, um, uh, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> but uh, but grounding this, um, this um, education, um, in uh, in neuroesthetics, I think is fundamental, 
it's different from grounding it in marketing, for example. Mm. Uh, your goal is different. Uh, your goal in one way is to understand what you're doing. The other way is you understand how, how efficiently and, and only efficiently you can do something to spread a particular message. Uh, so I think it's, understand to, it's, it's important to understand the impact you have um, on people uh, with what you are doing uh, beyond um, um, the marketing aspect. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons that it's so fun to talk to you is because in my own research, as you mentioned, with mini canvas and, and teaching people how to draw, um, it became very apparent to me that the skill of the skill of drawing and I would assume painting and, and everything in the visual world is so much more about understanding what you see than the physical act of putting it down. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly some things to practice with just making your circles good and stuff like that. But um, it's very it's it's fun for me to talk to someone who actually, you know, from a research end knows how true that is. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you. This has been a, a great conversation, but. Before we cap it off and go any longer, um, there are a couple rapid fire questions that we like to do for a little bit of fun, uh, and we'll see how you fare. So the idea here is just to fire back your response, whatever comes off the top of your head as quickly as possible. Okay. So uh, first and foremost, as uh, being from the French motherland, what is your favorite French food? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I uh, love cheese. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very original, but I love cheese. <laughs> Man, you guys do cheese right. After every meal, I love it. It's beautiful. Uh, and this is going to be a difficult one for you to answer, but I am genuinely curious. What is your favorite color? Oh, uh, purple. Yeah? Yeah. Purple, All right. violet. I love this color. It's that violet. <laughs> <laughs> On a symbolic uh, way, it's, it's, it's worrisome because uh, violet has symbolized uh, death a lot mm. or, uh, <laughs> or church. <laughs> <laughs> which, I am which so one drawn. Is worse? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I love this color. I, yeah. I, I cannot paint anything without purple in it. Yeah. I don't know why. Beautiful. It's your signature. <laughs> I love it. And the most important question maybe that there ever was, who is your favorite Beatle? My favorite Beatle? <laughs> John Paul, Georgia Ringo. Oh, oh John Lennon. Oh, John Lennon. He was the dreamer. He was All the artists guy. go for John oh, Lennon. Oh, yeah, John Lennon. <laughs> Dorothy, thank you so much. Um, how can people find out about you and your work? Where can they find you? Oh, if um, they want to reach me or if they want to collaborate, because I'm always interested in collaborating, um, they can reach me on my website, uh, dorothychabas.com. Um, uh, I have a blog post on my website that they can um, go to where I uh, regularly post uh, uh, neuroesthetics um, stories uh, where I go more in depth uh, that what I can do orally. Um, and uh, yes, so through my website. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really hope the listeners enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed sitting here with you. Uh, and uh, this has been beautiful sitting here in your studio. So thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we all see the next uh, generation of up and coming medical professionals and artists getting it in your aesthetics. It was my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. 
thanks so much to Dorothy for that awesome conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you want to learn more about Dorothy, as she said, she has a website at DorothyChabas.com. That's D-O-R-O-T-H-E-E-C-H-A-B-A-S.com. Dorothy Chabas. As always, listeners, please, if you enjoyed this episode, rate us, review us, wherever you find your podcast. We would really appreciate it. Tell all your friends. We're trying to grow, and uh, we love your support. Thank you so much. We want to bring you the coolest conversations from art and technology, but we don't know everything. If you guys have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, please hit us up on Twitter or Instagram under the handle State of the Art. There's some other awesome exclusive content there, too. Until the next episode, this is your host, Andrew Herman, signing off from State of the Art.